0: Hello, and welcome to the Order of Unmanageable Risks, a podcast about capitalism and anxiety. My name is Aris Comporosos Athanasiu, and I'm an Associate Professor of Sociology at University College London.
1: And my name is Max Haven. I'm Canada Research Chair in Culture, Media and Social Justice at Lakehead University in Thunder Bay, Canada. On this show, we speak with somebody whose research or writing has inspired us to think differently about the relationship between capitalism, society, and mental health. We attempt to go beyond medical approaches to mental health and anxiety and explore the way an economic system of capitalism both produces and at the same time relies upon anxiety. This podcast is co-produced by the Common Anxieties Research Project uh, that Aris and I uh, coordinate and is supported by University College London's Institute for Advanced Studies and the Reimagining Value Action Lab. And for more information, you're welcome to visit
0: us at anxious.community. And in this episode, we are delighted to be joined by Adam Kingsmith. Welcome, Adam. Thank you for having me. Adam is a PhD candidate in the Department of Politics at York University in Canada and the co founder of EIQ Technologies, an emotion AI startup that is based out of uh, the design fabrication zone at Ryerson University. Adam is currently writing an open access book that is entitled Anxiety as a Weapon at AU Press. So uh, it's great to have you with us today, Adam, and um, as we were just talking informally just before we started this podcast. It's, uh, it's a particularly um, great pleasure because your work and your writing really speaks uh, to the themes, the heart of the themes that we are interested in exploring in this podcast. So both the sides of this podcast, capitalism and anxiety, really come together in your work. Um, so I'm going to just jump straight in and ask you a question uh, about your understanding of the current form of anxiety in the particularly for the, the specific form of capitalism that we're experiencing. And I know, um, so you, you, you've written a number of pieces that look at that type of anxiety, and, and I wanted to uh, just read you a, a short passage from one of your recent essays, um, the, uh, titled The Anxiety Industry, Over a Public Seminar where you talk about anxiety as, and I'm reading now, atomizing discourses of self-care and wellness that persuade people that if they are feeling sick, depressed, or anxious, the issues are not social or economic, but individual. This serves to obscure the fact that the social and economic life has become far less secure in recent years due to dramatic reductions in privacy, workplace rights, job security, regulatory oversight, pay levels and social welfare, which has led to a large increases in chronic stress across the populations of many countries. And you write a bit further down in that, in that essay that against this hyper-individualistic vision of mental health, it is important to reiterate that the myriad of products proliferating, proliferated for treating our insecurities, from the gravity blanket and fidget spinner to the yoga retreat and the Netflix binge, skew how we understand anxiety and its function in the reproduction of social and economic uncertainty. And I think this is re- this is a beautiful passage that really captures something quite interesting about this type of contemporary anxiety. And I wondered if you could unpack this for us a bit more. For sure. Um, yeah, I think I
2: see it kind of as like a, a sort of double move. I think that the way in which anxiety kind of operates under modern capitalism, uh, the, the first thing that often happens, I think, with these with these technologies, is we see a personalization. So it's about kind of localizing the ailment or the problem in you know uh, your biology. Or I think Max, you had a great quote about like broken brains, right? It's about situating things in broken brains and in individuated context. So I think the the first thing is that uh, health and wellness is, is is framed as a personal problem that is divorced from the social political, economic context in which it takes place. And then secondly, and I think this is particularly with, with technology uh, today, we see a kind of like adjusting for happiness or an adjusting for normalization, which I think is particularly interesting. So these technologies, I guess why I think they slot so neatly into the discourses of neoliberalism is because it's all about kind of normalizing and maintaining like a productive subject and just kind of like keeping people going on. You know, I always think of these technologies as trying to find that perfect balance of like pushing people to the rate where they're right about to burn out, but don't actually let them burn out because that's expensive and they need to take time off, you know? So I think just to kind of summarize, it's, a, it's this double move of simultaneously a kind of personalization, but then also like a normalization or a kind of adjust for happiness. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and I'm I'm wondering, I was going to ask about that anyway, but since you mentioned technologies right from the start, I I was going to ask you to talk to us a bit more about that role of technologies as you see it in in mediating this specific kind of anxiety as you were describing it. And, you know, you you mentioned in that quote, I read Netflix, for example, and the kind of specific type of engagement uh, that this sort of... uh, uh, represents but I, I wonder if you could give us a bit more details about that role of technology and other examples of technologies and what and how they do it.
2: Yeah I mean I think that the kind of thread running across like, a lot of these different technologies um, is a kind of process of like self-quantification or, like self-management so it's kind of always about again like sort of self-optimizing okay I'll go on to, like my Netflix binge and that's kind of like my I can have my like unproductivity that's like my downtime and then, you know, I have like, uh, I have my app where I'm tracking sort of like my heart rate and the different things just to try and correlate those like downtimes to make sure that they're like productive downtimes. And, you know, you see this, this, this desire for people to just sort of really self-manage and self-direct. And I think that a lot of these technologies sort of help I don't know, kind of create the illusion that you're empowered, create the illusion that you have access to control and, and agency over your life in a way that really is about kind of internalizing in a very Foucaultian way, a kind of like managerial way of thinking about the world, but kind of like as, your sort of, as yourself, kind of a self-managerial. And I mean, I think what's really interesting about, and I'm glad you brought up like things like the gravity blanket, because these things are fascinating. Like the wellness industry in general is so interesting because it's like health adjacent, right? So you never actually have to like, Uphold any of the like epidemiology claims, health claims, testing regulations. You know, with wellness, it's just this vague kind of industry where you can just say it will make you better, and there's really no. You know, there's lots of instances to give you an example of. The Gravity Blanket company keeps having to change the copy on their website because the FDA keeps being like, you can't say this makes people better. You have, you have no evidence. So I think in a lot of ways, just in general, the wellness industry is like a cover for these things.
1: I want to ask a quick follow up there, which is sure. one of the things we 've been tracking in our in our interest around the intersections of mental health care or lack of care um, and and the industrialized or commercialization of such has been the strange interplay on the one hand between exactly what you're mentioning the way that companies that are trying to essentially sell products or sell processes or sell health adjacent um, activities. Um, There's one sense that they are trying to advertise something that they're trying to sell. There's another sense that a lot that uh, the, the discourses around mental health and care have changed a lot driven by users of these services or people affected by these ailments. So you have whole online communities that, for instance, are complicating in various ways the spectrum of diagnoses uh, by saying, well, you know, I don't just have the kind of thing that my doctor has diagnosed me with. I actually have a subsection of it or I refuse that diagnosis and choose to use different terms uh, to describe my activity. Or similarly, you have, um, you know, like a lot of the success of like the gravity blanket is due to users of this deeply believing and getting a great deal of relief from their use of it and then sharing that online. I guess it's not so much of a precise question, but I'm curious about the interplay between, on the one hand, the, the kind of commercial and uh, explicitly or manifest neoliberal uh, tendencies of these technologies from their producers, from the supply side, so to speak, and then also from the demand side as well.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the important thing to kind of reiterate, and I try even in the essay to you know, make it clear, I mean, these things make people feel better temporarily. They, they do work, uh, sort of, you know, I mean, I think the problem is often, and especially sort of your point, Max, uh, like communities cohere around these technologies, and they actually create vectors for people to have conversations around mental health that are maybe not in these institutional professional spaces, you know, but I think the problem is often like in the promise of what they offer, they offer a kind of like, they're often framed in terms of like kind of cures, as opposed to sort of like mitigative things that just kind of help, again, soften, normalize, correct for happiness. And so I think that's that tension there. Even I think there's a place sometimes for these things, like, of course, you know, who doesn't want to watch something relaxing after 10 hours of Zoom calls, you know, but uh, I I just think it's it's always in the question of how it's framed. and, And I guess what is promised. And I think that, again, back to my first point, that's the problem with the wellness industry is there really is no, you know, not that the health industry in general is great, but there's no regulatory oversight whatsoever. So, you know, and we've
0: we found this even in our own work in the tech industry. People can, yeah, essentially just claim anything. I'm too tempted to ask a very <laughs> quick follow-up on technologies because it's just a personal interest on, uh, on the, the world of astrology apps. And I'm wondering if you had any, any uh, sort of thoughts on, because they're, they're experiencing a boom and they're, they're, you know, hearing you talking about um, the kind of, uncontrolled and, and claims that can be made through these industries and remain unchecked and unregulated. I'm wondering, and because uh, I know you're also interested in kind of magic and the work, the work of sort of sorcery and the politics of it. So I'm wondering what, if you have any thoughts on this phenomenon of the, the boom of astrology apps.
2: Yeah, it's so interesting because again, I think that uh, astrology is a great example of, you know, someone once described it for me in this really great way as like Kind of libertarianism from for it's like libertarianism for men, you know, it's like astrology, and uh, again, not that again, I am completely empathetic to the concept of like the mystical and to magic, and I don't think we need to over rationalize, but I do think that kind of the base in the same way that you know in a previous episode, Mikhail explained so nicely that the basis of depression is almost like the lack of a future. I think that the kind of basis of anxiety is that that deep uncertainty. And I think even even when clinical psychologists kind of research it and approach it from a different angle that I think all of us would find a lot of problems with, they still use like a kind of intolerance of uncertainty scale. And they kind of spectralize anxiety in context with other forms of uncertainty. So I find almost these things, again, like the kind of astrology, which is, again, a very interesting form of almost like predictive analytics, right? Uh, To be, again, these attempts to, in a lot of ways, manage and mitigate this like kind of these feelings of helplessness, you know? And I think to our earlier conversation, you know, they don't—they don't really offer. They don't really provide what they offer. They say they can kind of help you have a sense of control, but it's—it's it's always so temporary, right? Like the real sense of control would be for us to sort of reorient the means of production, or you know, something much more complex than
0: than that. So that that gives me—it's uh, a good path for me to. Uh... Uh, to ask you about that move from the individual to the collective level and to the sort of responses, the emerging responses to the uh, the types of anxiety that we're experiencing. And uh, I want to refer here to another uh, of your essays where you uh, use the term anxious solidarity, which I think is really fascinating. And, you know, again, speaking also uh, about, we were just talking about astrology and the, the, uh, how rationality and irrationality work and in, in, those, in those kind of media. And I want to read a passage from that essay that you wrote on Anxious Solidarity, where you talk about, you describe, you capture the current, our current condition and the options that this current condition leaves us. Uh, and you do, So I'm going to read this passage. <clears throat> there is no escape velocity in our current condition, a condition of hyper-normalization, the rapid oscillation between opposing views on subjectivity, the dialectics of the last century and the indeterminate genealogical flows from modernism to postmodernism to metamodernism. It is this unpredictable and imperceptible terrain, a vicarious cultural milieu that has mutated from sincerity and irony into a form of unmitigated cynicism against which anti-capitalist politics must begin to organize. And then you continue and you you say, in such a society where each statement is simultaneously genuine and sardonic, our options tend to resemble one of two possibilities. One, we can attempt to evacuate these these ambiguities, pushing for a return to an enlightenment serialization of rationality, which according to a well-meaning, if not traditionalist segment of the Anglo-American left can still provide a basis for transformation and emancipation, or two, Secondly, we can adopt the cynical language of power, a structuration of differences, an ironic yet sincere voice that attempts to out-dada a dada president in a race to some infinite bottom against an opponent for which controversies make them more popular among their supporters. And you, you, so you, you talk about, you're talking here about uh, evacuate or accelerate. So uh, I think, you know, this is a really, I really like that passage. And I'm wondering if you can talk to us a little bit more about these two options as you describe them.
2: For sure. I mean, I think just even in in general, my own thinking around the concept of anxiety and even the title of this book, Anxiety as a Weapon, is really trying to explore this kind of like double move or this this tension, you know, because I think that on the one hand, what makes anxiety a kind of paralyzing force or an immobilizing force is the, the ubiquity of it the sort of widespread ways in which it's sort of, you know, reinforced people. We obviously like to use structures of feeling from Williams or maybe like effective atmosphere is as good from like Ben Anderson. But anyway, so the, the ways in which this is reinforced is, is, is ubiquitous and, and that is a source of paralysis. But I think the other side of that is also a kind of question around like mobilization. It's this idea that if you accept that anxiety is quite ubiquitous and you can and you can push that logic that, it's not purely like an individuated issue, but actually a collective widespread social problem. I think it kind of opens the door for this double move in the same moment. It can kind of be, again, I think the sorcery is really all about just a reaffirmation of both and in some ways, trying to really get outside of this sort of like either or way of of how we cultivate a solution to this.
0: Really really interesting. And uh, so which, and let me sort of ask you to um, tell us a little bit more about this, this question of sorcery as politics, because I think it, it, it just comes out of this, um, this kind of dilemma that we were just talking about. And again, I'll, just to read a, a shorter passage this time where you capture what you, how you define sorcery as politics, you say the fundamental contribution of sorcery as politics is, to, is a claim to the involvement, to the evolution of the limits of mimicry. In essence, sorcery is con- conjured when a political project discards the desire for fixed representation, defined broadly as the social subjections of capitalism, which assign people, genders, races, occupations, etc., in the social hierarchy, and instead turns towards a conceptual openness to plurality and difference that excuse stable identities essences and conceptual unities that form fixed assemblages. Uh, So yeah, yeah, just over to you. Tell us a bit more about this. Sure. I mean, yeah, a lot of my thinking from uh,
2: around the sorcery is also drawn out around this concept of like trans-individuality or, you know, transversality or the kind of concept of the transversal. And, you know, people like Jeremy Gilbert and and Jason Reed are really good with this, just talking about the kind of like co-constitutive nature of like individuated subjectivity and and collectivity and how i think in a lot of ways to take up the the question of sorcery is to take up the challenge that someone like jeremy gilbert puts to his readers which is that we need to think of collectivities not as just assemblages of individuals that are you know inherently hierarchical but a kind of aggregate that is greater than the individuate parts and kind of looking at that continuum Maybe shows the links not only between the kind of individual and the trans individual, but the anxious, alienated, siloed individual and the kind of collective anxiety as a force for mobilization.
0: And Adam, do you? I mean, can I ask you if you? Because uh, this is, I think, really a powerful way to conceptualize uh, these uh, these types of um, responses to to anxiety, to capitalist anxiety. I'm wondering if you could. Uh, talk to us about any instances in the current political reality where you see those kind of ideas being particularly relevant and resonant. And maybe, you know, specifically if you, you know, if if there's, if there are any instances where you see those ideas being mobilized as a form of resistance and on a collective level.
2: Yeah, that's that's an excellent question. I think that Um, I mean, one of the things that I think about is, uh, you know, often when we want to talk about, like, technology and the ways in which it's managing mental health, right, it's often using things like cognitive behavioral therapy, dialectical behavioral therapy. Again, these things are all about siloing and bracketing the individual. And I think that there's a really interesting move now using this concept of the liberation health model, it's called. And that's kind of about you know, situating people's ailments in larger social, political, economic contexts. You know? It's something that seems again, like almost second nature to some people, people in our field, but as a mental health practice. And even just to give an example of a place like Toronto, I think people are kind of enacting a liberation health model in a lot of ways during COVID by I think contesting the right and like pol- the right wing political forces over this kind of battle for social reproduction. And so I think a really good example of this would actually be uh, the Vagabond's book uh, by Cassie Thornton on the hologram. And, you know, again, like alternative ways of kind of doing care mongering, doing collective accountability. I think that some really good examples of this in Toronto are things like the people's pantry doing like, you know, food organizing, rent striking, I think ways in which people are kind of recognizing, the shared vector of anxiety. And I think COVID in some ways is an accelerant for this because it, it reveals the kind of cracks that are already there. And using that as an impetus to kind of use their shared experience to try and sort of win the terrain back a little bit for things like social reproduction, which I often don't see left-wing movements so interested in. It's often kind of surrendered to the right, you know.
1: So, yeah, I think that's a, a good example of, of one way in which that model is being utilized now. I don't know if it's, I, I, I want to take up briefly the ways in which um, social reproduction and uh, and forms of care, I would say forms of carceral care in some ways are, are weaponized and used by, by the right, uh, mm-hmm. both in government formations, but also in grassroots formations. And I think here about, you know, like the incredible power, especially in the United States and especially in some of the most um, reactionary jurisdictions of Uh, fundamentalist churches, for instance, that, you know, do provide food, they provide housing, they provide a sense of solace and community, they provide certainly uh, what presents itself as an antidote to uh, anxiety and the sense of offering a coherent linear narrative about what's going to happen both in this life and the afterlife and what you should do to control your faith. Um, But then I I, I guess uh, I have sort of two questions coming out of it. One of them is, if, if you can think of other sorts of examples where uh, we have not only the, the anxiety industry that is seeking to profit by um, the, the production and, and, and alleged remedies to uh, anxiety, but also um, the politicization of anxiety from right-wing perspectives, that's sort of question one. The second question I have, though, is about, um, and maybe it's deeply connected, is about the kind of... Um, there has been over the last decade or so, uh, accelerating in the last few years, um, a turn within, mostly within secular or allegedly secular right-wing thought to this kind of castigation of a society that they claim is obsessed with anxiety. And here I'm thinking about the uh, old millennial thesis, but perhaps most famously, um, the the pseudo-intellectualism of Jordan Peterson, who, for whom the, the kind of the sine qua non is that sort of life is suffering and, and claims to being aggrieved by anxiety or affected by anxiety or simply attempts by special interest groups to uh, leverage the ill-begot guilt of majorities to give them special rights, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I'm sorry, that's kind of two long-winded questions, but I guess the first is looking at kind of the right-wing mobilizations of anxiety and the other is this kind of strange um, turn in right-wing thought around how anxiety is in fact not simply the, the product of an anxious society, but in fact some natural condition of humanity that we need to accept by all embracing uh, all the, uh, these other allegedly natural capacities of human beings.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think to your first point, uh, I think that the, the way in which, I mean, it's, it's always an easier compromise or an easier calculation, I feel like, you know, for the right, because it's about like you externalize this enemy. You say that the root of people's problems are this external enemy. If we just get rid of this external enemy, so on and so forth. But I think the key there is that it's, it's, it's always used as a vector of securitization, right? And I mean, you have seen this since, since 9-11, I'm sure before, but you know, like, never let a good crisis go to waste, right? The way in which... Uh, anxiety, uncertainty, insecurity is not only mobilized or utilized, but almost sometimes pumped up, you know, made even bigger than it maybe is so as to legitimate the kind of loss of, you know, civil rights and, and, and democratic freedoms and stuff. And I think one of the things about this that I find especially concerning is for me, it was almost like the loss in this idea of like, kind of consciousness raising. For me, like the moment when you see things, you know, like, the sort of like Panama Papers or like the Snowden leaks and like, okay, like we've accepted in public discourse that like everyone's being surveilled or like the U S constitution isn't really like a a thing that actually exists in the way that we used to think it does. And that never, that outrage never actually leads to any like vector of mobilization. And I think that speaks to the ways in which people's fears and insecurities, instead of being kind of like turned towards the actual forces of what they are, are just kind of turned against, you know, other people in society, people who aren't the sort of central power group in society. So I think for the right, it's almost like, yeah, anxiety is a, a vector of, you know, securitization. And I think t- to your second point, uh, which is obviously a really good one, these people like, you know, Peterson and, and stuff, and let's bracket, you know, their their class, gender, backgrounds that they, you know, that they come from for a second, even just this idea that anxiety is, you know, quote unquote, natural, like, yes, I mean, the processes of like fight and flight mechanisms are, are natural, uh, but we also have to like historically contextualize these things. And I think at the end of the day, what these people are trying to do is kind of jump from psychiatric field into like almost a sort of pseudo social science. You know that it, at, at the end of the day is just trying to kind of sneak in a super individuated way of thinking about again mental health and about issues. Uh, and again, someone like Jordan Peterson is a great example, right? Because they actually have all the bulwarks of someone who, like, needs a different approach to mental health. They have, like, substance abuse issues, addiction issues, right? And I'm sure that they don't hold themselves fully responsible for those issues. So I think it's also, like, uh, yeah, I mean, sometimes it's just, the, it's just such a rhetorical thing, the way that these, these moves are, I don't know, made to feel like people are responsible for their own ailments, you know?
1: We have the anxiety industry, as you have framed it. Um, and like all capitalist industries and and i think you point this out and even in your in your last response too that there's an element of it that has its use values so to speak there's its exchange values where it seeks its market and creates its market and manipulates its market but then underneath for any capitalist commodity um, to thrive and to be activated it needs to have its use values and i think you you map this out really well that you know like people are suffering, and they are looking for relief. Um, and so again, it, maybe it comes back to something that you've already said, but like, if we accept that in some way, anxiety, at least in the way that we imagine it is that is produced as something that is produced, then what, what does it mean to reclaim the means of its production? Um, and I guess I mean that there's, there's one way we've already spoken, and it would be interesting to speak more about the ways in which people are Um, figuring out new forms of collective care that move us beyond the commodified model. But then I also wonder about the the means of producing a meaning for suffering Um, and what, what that looks like on a discursive frame as well, and whether that can be done with the current word or terminology around anxiety, or do we need a different word a different category a different thought category to explain all of those experiences that today we lump under this this strange uh this strange term does that question make sense for sure i mean i think i think it's a good question because i mean anxiety
2: has become this kind of catch-all word right that people use to describe you know varying degrees of like mild to very severe anxiety and often not, not even anxiety at all something else right and i think the fact that that's the word people are, are reaching for is still significant and tells us something about the current political moment, but maybe also speaks to the limits of the concept. And, you know, I mean, what I think uh, is, is, a, is a key aspect of the basis of how we need to think differently about anxiety is that, again, it, I think that most of the ways in which anxiety is mitigated is it's always about making people, uh, giving them resilience, making them endure, making them productive, making them happy. And I think that a lot of the times in which we're angry and sad and frustrated and alienated are valid and legitimate and important. And I think that in some ways, if we could think about anxiety differently, we could try and transform some of that sadness into like a kind of activating anger. You know, again, in the Nicholas Rose podcast, he spoke a little bit about power without domination. And that's kind of what I think we need to think a little bit about in terms of this sort of anxiety is how do we make it powerful, make it angry, make it sometimes, if needed, even violent. Violence manifests in many ways, but uh, yeah, not, not repressing it, a different kind of anxiety. That's almost the thinking about anxious solidarity, you know, it's a sort of collective force of anger. And why, why I think the concept can be so helpful is because, again, right, all of the literature on anxiety shows that racialized people have have more anxiety, poor people have more anxiety, women have more anxiety, able disabled people have more anxiety, right? So it's intensified based on your vectors of oppression. But at the same time, we can kind of talk about the nuance across the shared experience without flattening it. And I think that is the kind of, what I wanna talk about as like a lightning rod. That I think is what's important is it allows, there's lots of concepts we can find that like people can all relate to, but they often like erase that differential and so, yeah, I mean, in some ways, I think that's the key is like this thinking more about how we can turn it into anger and like be okay with that and that sadness and that frustration. And I think people are, if they're allowed to sit with it, but then you have your app that's like, no, 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 like we're going to make sure that you're going to be happy. We promise, you know, or your money back. So we do maybe need a new way of thinking about it. And I haven't finished the book yet, but the last part is called after anxiety. So when I, when I find out what that
1: is, <laughs> I'll let you know. <laughs> we'll bring you <laughs> back on the podcast. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Um, and one, one final thing is I just wanted to invite you to maybe tell us a little bit about the the company that you have that, that is working on affect and technology. Um, and yeah, maybe tell us a bit about what the project you're working on and, and, and how it's connected to the research that you're doing as well.
2: Sure. Um, I mean, the impetus for the, this company that I started with a, with a few friends, and again, we're kind of aware of these, these, these paradoxes of these, being these kind of like critical people trying to start this organization. It's been a very fascinating learning process. But the impetus is just that we would go to politics conferences and nobody would know anything about technology. And we'd be like, this seems problematic. And then we'd go to tech conferences and all these people that are like either right-wing or apolitical. We're like, this is also hugely problematic. And so it was really just an attempt to like, no more reading groups. We're just going to start this thing. We're going to learn the language of these spaces and we're going to just sort of dive into actually trying to understand how these data management platforms work, how self-quantification works with emotion. And so our main focus, which I think differentiates us from other organizations or companies doing this work, is again, we don't try and tell people how to feel. We try and help you understand how you're already feeling. And by having people wearing biosensors and other, other sort of ways that, that measure heart rate and can situate that in people's contexts to just give them a better understanding, not only of how they're feeling, but how spaces make people feel, how crowds make people feel, to kind of just help situate the larger understanding of anxiety. And again, not to tell you what to do with it, just to kind of give people a better understanding of, of that process and how it works. Because I do think that we need more kind of Critical, uh, open-minded people really trying to actually dive into these worlds and interface with these people, because I just find that often, at least in the spaces I've been in, people don't know how these things actually work. We have our analysis, but not how the actual like mechanisms of the tech work. So for us, yeah, the, the impetus was really just that we wanted to try and create an organization that was going to try and build some tech that would actually, you know, be open access and open open source and empower users and. I think, you know, some of the stuff when we want to talk about anxiety in tech that's really interesting in the future is like data management models. You know, all of our biodata data is just sent to Apple and to Google and they just keep it, you know. But if we had maybe like a, there's so much great work being done like data cooperatives, data trusts, you know, these things would have, a, I think, a, a good chance of really destabilizing the tech paradigm if you could sort of open up the ways in which people's, health data is, is managed and shared, you know, with, with their actual buy-in. And so really the impetus, yeah, was we wanted to like involve consumers in the tech and like learn in the process with, with them. See, even the word consumers, like the language sneaks, sneaks into your head, you know, you know, when we first talked about this, this technology to like potential investors or, you know, people in the, in the university who are like in, in management roles, they were just like, who would wear this? And then we just rolled out like 10 Gen Z-ers, and they're like, I want this, I want this, I want this, I want this. Like they're already integrated. They're already cyborgs. You know, they're already all about like this kind of biofeedback, haptic connectivity. And I just think that better them having that control than Google or Apple, you know? And I think to your point, the most interesting part of experimenting with these things often is the space between what the students or what the people wearing it will self-report and what the actual software says they're doing says they're feeling and there's often these big gaps in between people's kind of like cognizant description of their emotional state and the technological portrayal. not that either one is more necessarily right than the other but uh i do think it's interesting that they don't line up often
0: okay well i think you know we could we could go on uh and on uh, about this it's really fascinating stuff uh but at this point i'd like to Thank you for joining us in today's episode, Adam. It was a pleasure to uh, talk to you about um, your really fascinating work. Thank you for having me. Yet yet another really, really interesting conversation here about those uh, those themes of anxiety and capitalism. I mean, I, I think personally, I thought that, you know, there have I see some great links also with our previous podcasts now and, and these become uh, really interesting threads uh, in, in the podcast i 'm very pleased to see them and in particular um i was very I was fascinated by uh, adam's uh, way of um, sort of framing the uh, this, the, the available Options that we sort of have in this kind of very uncertain and anxious terrain of of contemporary politics and uh, the uh, and because I think there is something about on the one hand the kind of rationalizing kind of enlightenment scientific discourse that uh, you know clearly is very has cast a, a big shadow over the uh, kind of uh, scientific individualizing psych- psychologizing approach to anxiety, uh, but then on the other hand, there is this uh, approach of um, uh, the, this this kind of more uh, chaotic and um, uh, also anxiety inducing approach or the kind of more populist approach to Uh, to existing in anxiety, you know, and this, this is the kind of, I I kept thinking here about, you know, Trump and Brexit and the kind of the politics of chaos and, and, and take taking, you know, kind of um, intentionally uh, remaining in that space, this political space of constant volatility, keeping people on edge as a kind of political strategy. And I think, you know, that's also another uh, political space, which, you know, we see with COVID now, these kind of worlds collide, right? I mean we have this on the one hand scientific evidence and expertise and on the other hand this kind of populist uh, um, uh, you know will be fine kind of approach, kind of denial uh, in that that kind of space. So I I was really interested to hear from Adam uh, how he has been thinking about concepts around uh, moving to a, a to ways of acting that go beyond those two sort of spaces those two, those two ways of um, existing with, uh, with anxiety and I really like this idea of uh, anxious solidarity um, and it's it's for me you know this is a key question that we, you know we, we are touching on in an episode after episode you know what is this collective uh, more radical collective way of working with anxiety rather than kind of against it or or you know controlling it in a kind of uh, pseudo-scientific way right what how do we um and and you know also how do we understand um the, uh, the these kind of more um, dormant kind of these unarticulated ways in which people are doing so and again uh, adam talked about he gave us some interesting examples of, of ways that this is happening, um, especially in the context of the COVID crisis and, and networks of, of uh, care and, um, and so on. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, this is, this is really, uh, once again, I was, I was really, um, I was, yeah, very, very interested in, in, in those links and those threads and, and um, yeah, looking forward to exploring them more.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think um, in a similar vein, I was quite struck and, and by his engagement with a, a set of work um, that, and he names uh, people like Jeremy Gilbert and uh, Jason Reed um, who are thinking about the, 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 how problematic it has been for our understanding of politics, to remain fixated on the monad-like individual subject. Um, and that that, especially when we're thinking about um, political affects like anxiety or political pathologies like anxiety, um, that, that does such an injustice to the complexity of these challenges, which are in fact shared and have to do with the ways in which we um, they They are ailments in the fabric of our sociality more than they are ailments in the fabric of our neurochemistry um, with the proviso that sociality and neurochemistry are of course dialectically entangled um, and it brought to mind work that I'm reading right now, uh, which I thought i would I would sort of just bring into our discussion um, by uh, the critical race theorist Denise Ferreira de silva who who uh, heads up a center on um, gender and social justice at the University of British Columbia. She offers a really useful language here for explaining how a world became so subordinated to this idea of the political individual, uh, the political individual who in an increasingly a neoliberal age takes on the mantle of homo economicus, so to speak, um, I, and something that I think you're, you're engaging with quite a bit in your own work on, on the speculative uh, homo speculans and speculative math. And she points out that you know, the at work throughout the history of colonialism, imperialism, and the birth of capitalism has been the splitting of human subjects into two types. There is the type that uh, declares itself the individual, uh, which is to say a self-contained monad who is the seat of judgment, the seat of reason, uh, the impenetrable um, uh, and unaffectable uh, political subject and this is what we're all supposed to aspire to the kind of esteemed subject of politics the esteemed subject of the economy which she calls the transparent i like i is in the letter i although the metaphor or the the um, double entendre of the transparent i eye is also interesting to dwell with but she's speaking about the transparent i the i that is self transparent to itself that that understands itself fully or claims to understand itself fully and this is the i that would have no cause to be anxious because they understand the world, they don't overreact, they are unaffectable. Uh, And they are unaffectable by others, ideally, this transparent eye. It's an eye that presumes it can survive in society uh, as in relationship with only other transparent eyes, only other walled off monads. Um, And she points out that the only way that this mythological figure, this subject, the transparent eye can exist, is by finding in the world and labeling others as what she calls the affectable eye. Uh, That is a subject who is uh, affectable by the natural world and by other people. And so women, people of color, indigenous people, disabled people, anxious people are all examples of a kind of affectable I, which she associates with a kind of logic of raciality that carves and segments the world in a sort of racial capitalist order. And this discussion with uh, Adam brings this useful language to mind to me because it reveals how deeply our whole system is based on the myth and the ideal of being unaffectable of being kind of this perfect self-contained subject who isn't affected by others. And yet, of course, the reality is that we are all affectable. That affectability is ultimately the condition of being human. And it is anxiety producing because others are difficult. Others disagree. Others are inscrutable. Others are difficult. Hell is other people, to paraphrase uh, Sarah. Um, And so there's something that is emerging now and I think as, as Adam points out, it's emerging in, on the margins of a new politics uh, that I think we're also quite interested in, of common affectability, perhaps, uh, common anxiety in the case of um, Adam's work and our interests as well, that admits that this whole mythology of the unaffectable subject is, needs to be uh, abolished. Uh, And begins to do that abolition, not through a kind of philosophical move of kind of repose and consideration, but through the actual um, experiments in providing care and being accountable and affectable to one another differently. And I think that I would just close by saying that means we live in an extremely exciting time, I think, when finally, after 500 years of uh, this mythology of the transparent eye, we're beginning to see its hegemony and domination crumble. And I think that maybe allows us to link in some ways the movements for care, the demands for uh, thinking about anxiety and for mental health to the other social movements that I think have been so interesting to us as well in this moment.
0: Absolutely. I mean, I, I think we couldn't have uh, concluded this podcast uh, in, a, in a better way. Um, so, Um, so thank you again for joining us for today's podcast this was the order of unmanageable risks a podcast about anxiety and capitalism for more information you can head over to our dedicated website anxious.community and uh, we'll see you next time see you next time